Dublin District Court 4 was cleared of the public. Two men entered the dock and sat apart like strangers for District Justice Udonachab. The wife of one of the September 1975. Two men sit in the dock of the Bridewell, Dublin's busiest district court. They were caught leaving a public toilet together and they now face Judge Udonica, who has the power to imprison them under the laws of the day. After waiting there a while, the door to one of the cubicles opened and one man came out. The guard saw a second man still inside the cubicle. He stopped both accused and spoke to them outside the toilets. At that time, they denied everything. Later, they admitted all. Nell McCafferty reported on the case that day for her Iris Times column, In the Eyes of the Law. Her column appeared regularly for six years and it painted a unique picture of life in the lowest court of the land, characterised by empathy, tragedy and humour. If a wife does not wish to hear, she can go outside. This is a public court. The wife remained and listened to the two accounts of the men's sexual activities together. The Bridewell itself, located across the road from the four courts, was a grim affair and it lacked the grandeur of its more famous neighbour. Uh, an old one called Victorian, uh, was it red brick? It was dilapidated, so dilapidated that uh, when I went to use the public toilets in the courtyard, with my delicate sensibilities, I found myself, my stomach was evening and the place was smelly, and I thought, I thinking, this is really rubbing their noses in it. I mean, someone could clean these toilets, some of the toilets didn't flush. And I decided I'll do my court column today on. And I started it off. The walls are covered in shite. There is shite everywhere. There's a smell of shite on there. So I can't write that. And I said, do you want me to write feces? Well, that's sanitising for you. And I refused. And I went to the editor. And I said, Mr Gageby, it is shite. It's brown. Of course, it's before the hunger and the dirt strikes in the north. I said, it's brown. It's smelling. And I have to work there too. We're all working there. Even the guards have to go under. And he said, shite, it is now. <laughs> in Nell's reports, the defendants were portrayed, more often than not, as luckless, harmless or desperate. Their interactions with the powerful guardian and judges are described with mischievous humour and an eye for the absurd. Nell's decision to never name these defendants stems, she says, from her formative experiences in her hometown of Derry at the outset of the Troubles. I had just come down from Derry, where the British government had introduced a mandatory six-month sentence for rioting. A policeman would decide when you're rioting. And I'd gone up to court one day to see these sentences, and I struck the number of distraught, worried parents in the hallway of the courthouse. He's got a conviction, Jesus, he'll never get to America, which in Derry in those days... Uh, we had no, not many jobs. I thought, God, their futures are ruined. And they were also thinking, oh, God, our name's in the paper. Our family's ruined. And I remembered that. I, I should add, within a few, few months, Terry, you couldn't wait to get your name in the paper for a, a rioting conviction because you're a, you're a star, you're a hero, and you're yourself a legend in your own lunchtime. Where did you come up with the idea to write a court report, but in a kind of that kind of style? to Ever seen it before, or was it being done? The idea came from the news editor, Donald Foley. Because when I joined the paper, he hired me because of the sulphur from the bog side, all that. 
and he liked the way I talked to him. He thought I was very candid or something. I asked direct questions. And the day I went in, he wasn't there. The acting news editor looked at me, the money scared all that, and said, oh, go to the woman's desk. And I entered the woman's desk and I thought, I am sacked. I don't do fashion. I don't do babies and I can't cook. But we struggled on and Donald came up with this idea, would you go down the courts? And what is classically called, a, he thought, a colour piece, give us a sense of it, etc. And I went down to the courts. And firstly, I was stunned at the rough justice. Uh, there was no free legal aid then. And the judges made their own rules and were rude about it to some of the defendants. A psychiatrist for the younger man, aged 25, was called to testify the defendant had been referred to him by a priest. The psychiatrist said he has been attending me regularly five days a week since this happened. He did not think, in fact, that he could be treated and was wrongly advised this effect by a psychiatric nurse. Depending on his desire, he can be treated with psychotherapy. No medication is being used. The solicitor asked, was it fair to suggest that he was sexually immature? The psychiatrist agreed he was. Famous though I was, and well known it all was. At the end of a court case, the defendant, usually convicted, came up to me and said, please don't put my name in the paper. I said, I wouldn't dream of it. They said, I know, and they'd hand me a fiver. I said, look, mister, I don't do that. And they'd give me a tenner. I said, mister, I don't do that. And I didn't know how to get out of it, because he's going to go home and not believe me, and he's going to be worried. And uh, after a while, I started bringing in my own court cases and gave them a copy. I said, look, they were terrified even then. And I decided, whatever happens, I'm not going to name the defendants, because they've suffered enough. Were you telling me a story about a woman who lived in your road that kind of influenced that decision? Another influence, yeah, in the bog side there before I'd come down. Uh, an item had appeared in the Belfast Telegraph that, let us say, Mary X was convicted yesterday of stealing of John West salmon. And the street shuddered. And we waited. We knew what would happen. And the husband comes home. And we hear the thumps. We hear the squeals. And my mummy. My own mother, who was the street referee anyway, very matriarchal, she went over and firmly pushed open the door and shouted to him, that's enough now, Johnny, and fetched the wife out and brought her bleeding and bruised across the street to our house where the two of them sat in the kitchen all night long. Uh, and I thought, that's what happened when your name goes in the paper. And I remember well, my mummy said, Wasn't it, haven't you the great style? He, he took John West, not that cheaper stuff, and we all cheered ourselves. But those things I remember, I particularly remember the following morning, because they were still hunched over the ashes in the fireplace. My daddy gets up to go to his work, and he meets the abuser across the street, and they salute each other the way men do. Not a word about excuse me, your wife is in my house bleeding. Stop it. Men didn't talk like that. All of those things, all of those things built up onto how I reported the court cases. The other solicitor went into the case history of the married man. He had married two years ago, and unfortunately his job entailed his being away from home very often, 
The only conclusion I can come to, said the solicitor, is that he was suffering from depression. He'd had a few drinks in that evening. A conviction would result in the loss of his good job. On the strength of the job, he and his wife had bought a house with heavy mortgage commitments. His wife says they're happily married. She's a very nice person, obviously. So is he. I think I can assure you, Justice, that there will be no repetition of this incident. The Justice pointed out that the statements implied a prior association. He warned they'll have to break up such associations. It's extraordinary how these types seem to gravitate to each other. In other countries, I understand this is not an offence between adult consenting males. The solicitor said, and no one actually saw them do it. Well, said the justice finally, it's against the law here. The law is the law and they broke the law. One answer is prison, obviously. (laughs) If they had been dealt with before a jury, they could have gotten penal servitude, strange as it seems to say, in the interest of justice. I will bind them in their own bonds to keep the peace for a year. It goes without saying that their association must break up and there must be no repetition of this. And I said, what I will do is I'll name the judges. The things those judges were saying did people ever know. And I recorded what they said and reproduced it word for word. And very short articles, some of them were 300, could be 300 words. Most court cases lasted three minutes then. And I described the demeanour of the defendant, the demeanour of the judges, but mainly... I recorded what the judges said because every time they opened their mouths they put their foot in it and unfortunately for the judges, the fools, the fools, they thought they were coming famous. And one of my proudest moments was I, was I was walking down the streets of the court and there's these four Dublin, uh, probably Dublin City Council, digging holders, labourers, and they were sitting around a fire and they were reading the Irish Times. And I said hello. What's that you're reading? I said. And they said, Have you read this woman's reports? I said, Boys, I am that woman. And I thought, This is a revalidation of what I'm doing. People are reading it, but it has to be said. Why didn't any other reporter follow up on me? It's a, I mean, it's a straight way to start them. I mean, it wasn't that difficult to do what I was doing. It took me years to figure it out. When you go down the district court, you're the lowest rung of the journalist ladder. I mean, some of them might have gone for the big murder cases or a Mary Robinson legal pre- playing the Constitution like a violin, like contraceptive case McGee. But you're out of the office. You're away from office politics. You're not in the running for promotion. I was just... I'd find my level. I'm from the bog side and I'm down in the district court. I remember the Irish Times posting an editorial. We have reporters from... They named everywhere in Ireland. And the bog side, that's me. I did this column for six years and by now I'm beginning to get to know the defendants. And when a defendant would come in for the sixth time, when the judge is saying six weeks jail, I'm muttered six months. <laughs> and I began to see it from the judicious, judiciary point of view. Uh, when I started swinging that way in my head, kind of towards I the Call it what you will. Kind of towards saying there's more to all this than meets the eye. There's something wrong. When the same defendants all the time. Now someone would say it's a wraparound. Judge justice is a wraparound package. It's not enough 
to sentence them to jail, you have to give them probation, you have to get them housing, you treat them for their addictions, whatever. I, I, I only dumbly understood that at the end. Well, those things were not then available anyway. Now, you call that right-wing, I call that wise. If Nell's view hardened, it was not apparent in the column. It almost always told a story from the defendant's side, like the middle-class woman, who on impulse shoplifted Charles' suit and sweater. The judge at first suspended the sentence, but he then changed his mind at the last moment and imprisoned the woman. Nell writes, Look, missus, called the justice after her, if you'd whipped the child's suit and walked out, but you took something else. Nell continues, But the woman was already being led down gently between the supporting officers. At the bottom of the stairs, when it hit her, the whimpering began. Or then there's the story of the man who said he would donate his head to science after his death, winning £350 for his family, so could the judge please let his son out in bail? Nell wrote, The man who offered his very head as posthumous security towards the freedom of his son was refused. Woman coming along to bail out their, their sons, usually. I know who he would specialise in saying, uh, and how can you guarantee you'll pay the bail? Ah, Your Honour, I've got the children's allowance. But no, he would say, that's paid to your husband. Oh, Your Honour, and... You don't earn any money, do you, he would say. And they didn't then. And kept refusing on bail. Whereas Justice Good, who paid attention to my column, he began granting bail once. Allowed, taking the woman's surety into account. He thought himself liberal. Where are you getting the money, they would say. Oh, your children's allowance, that's paid to the husband and all that. And if he goes, if he jumps bail, uh, how will you be able to feed your children if that's all you have? They got you every way. Oh, the, there were three of them in the district court, so Huey, Planyak and Good. I know Good thought of himself as a liberal. He was Jewish and liberal. Fancied himself a bit too much. Oh, Huey, I think, as he sometimes, the cliche has it, underneath it has a heart of gold. But he went to great lengths to conceal it. What was the reaction to your column? Like, was it broadly... Praise was there was there criticism that you were taking the side of the defendants or, or any of that? No, no. There was people uh, uh, eyes wide open saying the judges are like that. They're saying those things. I'll give you an example. Uh, one day they brought in the heart cards. Brought in heart of Krishna guys who had been uh, playing their drums and fiddles in the street. Uh, had them charged with disturbing the peace and justice. Blinyak, I think he was. You can double-check, read my column. He's now dead. Just for an accident, any decent Irish man will be entitled to throw you over the bridge. Convicting him. This time. And Gareth Fitzgerald contacted me. So I've just read your article in London and I've gone to the top on this. The top legal levels and he'd also contacted the teacher. Then, as now... Defendants in the district court were largely down and out. In nearly every case Nell wrote about, poverty, alcohol or mental illness played a part. Today, beggars are generally not prosecuted, but in Nell's column, the same beggar returned to court multiple times per day. Nell paid particular attention to the people who needed help to end the cycle of arrest, conviction and imprisonment, but found none in the Bridewell. The majority of them were working class. And that would have obviously tugged my heartstrings a little, given my background in the bog side, and given my own background that I'm an outlaw too, I was born gay, 
<laughs> what did the church say about me, uh, the disorderly woman? And no, there's something worse than that they say about people like me. Intrinsically disordered. So I would have had those small uh, sympathies for them, but no, my my collar wasn't class biased as such. It was just it was mostly the working class that came to court. What was the cause of, of crime in, in, in the 70s? Burglary, theft, shoplifting, drunkenness. I have an impression there was bad housing, because I remember there was a man from Benburb Street. Nice fellow. I went to see him and his wife living in a slum flat. I got him a job. Because I had those kind of contacts in those days. Ali. He's a sad fellow. He said, I can't go for a job, I don't have a suit. I got him a suit, I had those kind of contacts. And he was off for the interview. A minor kind of a job. He lasted a week. And his wife contacted me. Somebody in the courts looking for me. He said he just couldn't handle the work. And that's when I began to understand what Sister Stanislaus says about helping the poor. Not enough to give them money. You have to give them a wraparound package. They need psychological treatment. They need a social worker to deal with their various problems. You need a psychiatrist. She says, it's not enough to give them money. And this poor fellow, all I gave him was a suit. And used me influence to get him a job interview. And he was really nice. I mean, he'd worked so long he couldn't handle it and he was used to. Well, whatever. Living in a slum flat. Mm. I've often wondered how that marriage worked out. Was there no, no nothing available then for alcoholics who repeatedly came in front of the court? No, no, just send them to jail and often, as I know, the alcoholics were pleased to get a night in off the streets, particularly females. Uh, uh, Try a bed, particularly in winter. Uh, a meal. They were just glad to get in. That's how bad that was. Also, I should tell you, justice was seasonal then. You would, a judge would say, coming up to Christmas, I am warning you, would say to defendants, anybody comes in here for shoplifting at Christmas, I'm sending them straight to jail. And the word went around. When you get your sentence date, don't go be around Christmas, don't go before that judge. So you, you choose a different, you know, oh, I can't go on that day, and you get a different judge, that kind of thing. My outstanding memory, without even consulting my own articles, is this one man appears in the dock, and he was a fellow, an appearance and demeanour, a, a person of no consequence. And a wee bit nervous. And I remember the judge, or this, whatever the charges read out. Sex with another man somewhere. And suddenly the defendant groaned, sobbed, and bolted from the courthouse. And the judge said, huh? The guard, never mind, we know where he hangs out, we'll get him later. And my heart went out to that fellow. Uh, having a bolt like that and I hadn't even I didn't know much about Oscar Wilde or anything like that but the man was 
frightened and worried, and I just let it go. But I remember that. I also remember a man, very tall man, red hair, a nice outline in his jaw. He knew there was something wrong with him, but clean. He was charged with it. He was soliciting children in Parnell Square. He'd offer them a few shillings to take them down the lane and masturbate them. He got a suspended sentence. That's how things were then. Well, what did any of us know about anything? In preparation for this interview, Nell visited the Criminal Courts of Justice on Parkgate Street, the 140 million euro complex that houses the modern district court. It was difficult to move far through the building without someone stopping Nell to talk. Within minutes, she had made her mark. She'd given out to some guards for losing the serial number in a case, she'd admonished the solicitor for wearing a Yes Equality badge in court, and she demanded a registrar ask a judge to make people speak into the microphone during the cases. I believe those courts cost a couple of million to build. Did anybody check the acoustics? Because you could hear everything in the district court, the old Bridewell. Not only could you not hear the acoustics were bad, but there are microphones there. The judge doesn't insist they use the microphone. Uh, bring your sweet lips a little closer to the microphone. They don't. The, the barristers don't, or the solicitors don't insist. And that's the first thing that struck me. Justice must be seen to be done and heard to be done. I could very rarely could hear what was going on. And the second thing that struck me, if that's what you're asking, is... You go to court now, there's free legal aid. Many of them, these are minor cases, depending on how serious it might be, also have a barrister. We, the taxpayers, pay for that. So you get free legal aid. You have translators because and now the, the, the Celtic Tiger has collapsed. A few Eastern Europeans were up. And... What else struck me about it? Oh, yes. The defendants in these, in these small courts for small transgressions are put behind a glass window. They're in a wee glass cage. Whereas Graham Dwyer is sitting out in full view of the court. Uh, I, figures, I asked a few cops, why are they behind glass? I asked a court clerk. Nobody could or would answer me and I had to sit and figure it out myself forgive me if I'm biased I think they think these are the working class you couldn't trust them they might leap out and, 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 and shout at us and swear and, and put their and attack us physically even though when you're behind the glass cage there's a a, a prison warden there and there's guards the courtrooms are Usually full of guards, but I was very struck by that. Now there's your class bias. One case stood out for Nell. An African man was being prosecuted for receiving stolen goods. The young man tearfully told the judge that he was working full time to support his young family, as well as attending night school. And he also denied that he knew the items were stolen. you feel any sympathy for him? I did, actually. A bit. Why? Because he, as you said, was going to night school... Was yes. trying to better himself. Was yeah. definitely a crook. But, you know, well, he, hadn't, he hadn't hurt anyone as far as I could see. I didn't. I wondered. 
I wondered was he innocent, except where he talked about a receipt in his camera phone and it's all been deleted. And I thought, come here, mister, what are you talking about? And when he broke down crying in the box. And when he broke down box, what did you make of that? He was crying. I, he lost it there. I thought he was just putting it on. Like or was reality hitting him? Because as we discovered afterwards, which we couldn't say at the time, not even in print, he's facing a whole list of similar mm. charges. So, um, and still my heart goes out, out to slightly. A man is putting himself through school and he's an immigrant and he's black. There was not so much racism now. Hello, this is Nan. This has been the first episode of This Side of the Law, a new legal affairs podcast which will examine the world of the courts, law, crime, criminals and judges and barristers and solicitors. And you get the picture. You can find new episodes on the This Side of the Law SoundCloud account or check in with our Twitter account, at Court Podcast. Declan Connell has produced this show. I'm Connor Gallagher. And from both of us, thanks for listening. And hopefully we'll talk to you again soon.